Well, we're in this new series that Pastor Eric got us started on last week, Jesus Works. It's starting from Matthew chapter 8. Do you have a Bible? Please turn there with me. If not, raise your hand. They'll bring one right from the back. Who needs a Bible? We can just hand one to you. We want you reading God's Word. We want you in it every day and uh, growing in that. And so just raise your hand till they get one to you. If you need it, you can keep it and uh, take it home with you. We want people reading in God's Word. And we're looking into the life of Jesus, how He works, because Jesus is God. And uh, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, that God is at work in this world in a lot of different ways and more than we know, and He invites us to participate in His work. And in this place, Jesus was bringing in the kingdom of God. He was preaching and uh, he was inviting people to follow. He was giving clear uh, direction and invitation of here's how you would live for God in your life and here's how to live with him forever after. So good directions sometimes are hard to find. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but this week while we were on vacation, I actually needed some directions. So I asked a man in uniform for some directions. And here's what he said. Oh, it's easy. He said, you go straight down here to the left. I said, so you go straight down here to the left? He goes, "Uh uh-huh. I said, okay, thank you. (laughs) Obviously, you don't know. You can't go straight and left at the same time. So, But Jesus gave clear directions, and his ministry was marked with preaching the word of God with authority and then proving the power of God by doing miracles that people just couldn't do, healing and and casting out demons out of people and uh, inviting people to acknowledge that he really was the Savior. He was the promised Messiah. He was the Lord who's come into this world, and he wanted people to follow wherever he leads. So how do you follow a Savior who can cast out demons, who can heal diseases? How do you follow him? Well, it's best to count the cost and to give him your complete devotion and to immediately and uh, allow him through you to touch the world with his love and his grace. You see, salvation, we call it a free gift. And what that means is you, it's not for sale, so you can't buy your salvation. You can't earn it yourself. There's nothing you can do to say, I'm, I've received salvation on my own merits. But to live it out, to receive salvation, and then to get it fully unpacked in your life uh, costs everything. Because Jesus wants to be, he demands to be number one. If he's going to be your Lord at all, then he wants to be number one in your heart and in your life. And so that is the proper place for him in our life. And if you're going to, he basically died for you so that you could live for him. So live for him each and every day. Well, we come to Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. It says this, When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw that his mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And so he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases." Now, this story was significant enough that it's in the Bible three times. It's in the book of Matthew right here. It's in Mark, and it's in Luke. And um, Jesus really wants us to uh, to be sure to understand, okay, what's going on here? And Jesus has begun to preach to large crowds in Matthew's version and to heal people. And he's already gathered his disciples around him. And so they are in on this. And he's just finished the Sermon on the Mount, which was probably given somewhere right there near uh, the Sea of Galilee. 
And uh, then they returned to Capernaum, which is this little town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus had found the disciples, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and their friends James and John. And so they didn't call ahead. They just showed up in town and went to Peter's house and they found his mother-in-law sick. And so Jesus healed her. It says he touched her hand and he healed her. And this is a third miracle in a row that Matthew records that Jesus performs that are really boundary breakers. They're not just, they're a miracle, yes, but they're, they're given to somebody who didn't deserve it like anybody would deserve a miracle. But um, for instance, Pastor Eric talked about two of these last week. There was the leper. I mean, nobody touches a leper. People with leprosy were supposed to be yelling unclean so that other people would know, clear out, get out of the way, you do, stay away. You don't want to get this because they thought it was contagious and there was no known cure at the time. And Jesus, it says, touched the leper and healed him. And then Jesus gave a miracle to a centurion. Nobody would help the enemy I mean, this person was the person in charge among the Gentiles, the Roman overlords, the ones who were making their lives very difficult. He was the officer in charge. He was the visible reminder of the domination that they're under. And Jesus healed his servant with a word from a distance and even commended the man's faith as having greater faith than anybody else he had met in Israel. And so you have these two, both a leper and a Gentile, and then Jesus heals this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. And Jewish, proper Jewish men didn't touch a woman, even on the hand. Even if they were in the market and he was giving her change for her purchases, he, he would drop the coins into her hand. He would not touch her. And you certainly wouldn't touch somebody who was sick with the flu. But Jesus breaks through all of that. I mean, Jesus was an equal opportunity dispenser of grace. He heals with a touch. And he does this miracle in her life. He heals her, and it says she got up and she began to serve Christ right there in her home. Do you know there's a great importance of touch? If you were just to Google touch and the importance of touch, we crave touch. Healthy, platonic, caring touch communicates at a level deeper than words, and we all need it. In fact, you know, every week I'll, I'll stand at the door and, uh, you know, some people shake hands, some want hugs, some uh, want just a fist bump, some just say hi. And, and, and it's, I think it's harder uh, than it used to be to greet people because so many people have been abused with improper touch that it's difficult to know how to approach the situation. So I generally try to let the other person define the distance and... Um, you know, some people don't want to be touched at all, but every so often somebody will go through the door and want a hug and give them a hug and then they'll say, do you know, thank you. That's the only human contact I've had since I was here last week. And you think, oh my goodness, how different. You know, nobody came and sat on your lap. Nobody crawled all over you. Nobody tried to wrestle you to the floor. Nobody, nobody gave you a hug, hello, or goodbye at any point during this week. You, there was, you had no human touch since the last time that we greeted each other at the door. So that's where I need your help of just reaching out to provide that healthy, positive touch with other people and to be sensitive to uh, what people's wishes are, to reach out and touch and uh, to, to be Jesus to people in that situation. You know, Jesus had this gift of healing, and there are people who have the gift of healing. And we've had people healed right here at church in ways that would confound medical doctors. Not as often as we might like, perhaps, but God can use this to demonstrate his power. 
But since you, you and I, most of us here, don't have that gift of healing, it really, there's, there's a tendency to think this way, but it wouldn't be right to say, well, since I can't heal like Jesus, well, then there's nothing I can do. I mean, that wouldn't be the truth. Because Jesus commanded his followers to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to represent Christ by living for Jesus in this world and doing what Jesus would do. And we, if we don't have the capability to do the miracles like Jesus could do, we at least can do what we can that would be like Christ. So we need to look for ways to touch and to bless and to lift up and to encourage. This week... On vacation, Cindy and I were reading this book, The Hole in Our Gospel, which actually Cindy was reading. I was doing Sudoku's, okay, to tell the truth. But, but then we would discuss it together. And uh, this is a book by Richard Stearns, who, uh, you know, had worked his way up in the business world all the way up to the CEO of Lenox, China, and uh, got a large salary to sell people more dishes to keep in their closet. And... Um, <laughs> No, no, it's an important job. I'm sure that a lot of people needed Lenox China. Some of you here probably have Lenox China, right? And, and uh, with that, he had uh, big uh, perks and a big salary and uh, a huge house and a fancy car, and he was all set. And then God got a hold of his heart, and he tells the story of being asked to be president of World Vision. And they said, yeah, we'll cut your salary by, you know, three-fourths, and you'll move out of the big house across the country to a little house and, uh, you, you know, get a more economical car, and you'll be traveling all over the world uh, talking to people and inviting people to live out their faith by showing compassion. And that's what he really feels is the hole in our gospel is that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, we say, we do, and love your neighbor as yourself, and we do. And he said, show compassion to the poor. And sometimes we think because it's such a big need, I mean, it's staggering. 26,000 children every day die of starvation or of disease. And we don't know how to grasp that or get a hold of it. And, and, and so we end up thinking, well, there's, no, there's nothing I can do, but, but that wouldn't be the truth. And so God got a hold of his heart through a teenager in Africa who um, was head of his household. He said, why are you the head of the household? You're 13 years old. He said, well, both my parents have died of AIDS, and I'm trying to keep our family together, my little brothers and sisters, and I'm trying to find work enough so that we can eat so we don't die of starvation. And then he was hooked by a lady who he'd gone to this village, and he's just about to leave. He's getting in his car, and she comes running over to the car, and through the open window, hands her, his, her baby, hands him her baby, and says, take my baby, take my baby. I can't feed, I don't have anything to feed him. I don't have any water for him. He's going to die. Well, of course, he left there without the baby, but it touched his heart, and he got home, and he told his kids about it that, uh, you know, she just had no resources and this baby was going to die. And the kids said, well, Dad, why don't we do something? He says, what? He says, we could give to that. We could give something that could help. And so he actually sent somebody back to that village, tracked her down, found her, and was able to give her money and, and kind of adopted that baby in their family. So Richard thought, oh, there's nothing we can do. We live so far away. And, but his own children were touched with the compassion of Jesus. Said, Let's find a way to show how we care, to, show, to do what Jesus would do. See, Jesus had this ministry of sharing God's word and of alleviating suffering. He could do miracles. But he was showing the disciples a plan to emulate, to share God's word, and to alleviate human suffering. And Jesus, Matthew even talked about it further 
in the book, just in case we had missed it right here. In Matthew 25, Jesus has gathered all of his disciples around him just before he goes to the cross. And he says to them this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because when I was hungry, you gave me some food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now Jesus is saying the proof that you are one of his followers is not what you say you believe. It's not how many times you go to church. It's not what you sing. It's not what you wear. The proof that you're truly one of his followers is that you do what Jesus would do. You feed the hungry. You give drink to the thirsty. You speak to the strangers. You welcome them in. You clothe the naked. You help the destitute. I mean, Jesus didn't put any qualifier on why are they so misfortunate. You visit the sick, you provide care, you reach out to those in the hospital and in prison with the love of Christ in practical ways. And just in case we might miss it, is why Jesus had the righteous people repeat all the same litany of things. Lord, when did we do those things? This and this and this and this. And to be sure that you don't miss the point, I mean, virtually the same scripture then is given in the negative where he looks at the goats and he says, you know, you didn't do this and this and this and this and this. You didn't do anything to feed or alleviate the thirst or to care or to clothe or to visit those. I mean, he's talking to the could care less Christians who he's saying won't be in the kingdom. Because Jesus didn't touch their life enough to actually make a difference in what they did. Do you think this is important to Jesus? Could he say it any stronger? I mean, for the sake of Christ, to reach out and touch, to reach out and care. I got an email from Peter Fredheim. He's he's the missionary in Nigeria that um, he's trying to reach out to people who are pretty close to the gospel and Christians have been persecuted. Some have even been put to death. And then remember, we told the story probably several times of a guy who was a persecutor of Christians who suddenly Jesus showed up to him in in bright clothing. It was just a story of Paul all over again. So they've called the guy Paul and he said, why are you persecuting my followers? You need to become a follower of me. And so when he came out of his trance, the man said, how do you become a follower of Jesus? His wife was shocked. And so there has just been this move of God's spirit there in northern Nigeria. And Peter wrote this in a recent email. He said, we need water wells. This is a way to show compassion. He said, we are trying to dig 99 water wells in communities right here in northern Nigeria where clean water is very scarce. Most of these communities are mostly or totally of another major religion. And in every single village that we dug a well last year, we were able to later clearly share the gospel with the people in that village. We shared with tens of thousands because we provided wells. And we saw several thousand people put their faith in Jesus, and it started by providing them clean water. 
So we have this goal of digging 99 wells this year. So far, we've had the funds to dig 21. It costs $300 to dig one well. He said, now is the most strategic time to dig more wells. We're in the height of the dry season, and many people are literally out of water. Those in the north are very open to the gospel right now because of terrorism or disillusionment with their own religion or a major move of God's spirit. So I'm wanting us to stop and pray for these people, but I'm also inviting you, write a check today. If you put it to South Shore and just put water on the memo line, I mean, you could dig a well for $300 and bring 100 people to Jesus. Can you find a better investment than that? I mean, so you probably ask me, well, where am I going to get an extra $300? And I figured it out. Just miss one trip to Costco. <laughs> you could do it. I mean, we could, we could pay for all these wells. And, uh, so let's pause and pray for them, shall we? Dear Jesus, these are people who need Christ. And they might be far away, and so we think out of sight, out of mind. But here's a missionary who's trying to reach them. And a little bit of money will dig a well that will bring fresh water to people and give a fresh opportunity for people to hear about Jesus. And it's been effective. So I pray that we will be generous and these wells will get dug and the people will hear about Jesus and be saved. Thank you. And thank you for using us as part of the solution. We love you. Amen. Jesus, just to review, Jesus is the Savior who heals. And he reaches out and touches untouchables. And he's given us that responsibility ourselves to reach out with compassion. He's also, as you see in the next little paragraph, that Jesus is the Savior who demands complete devotion. You know, healings are what you would call for Jesus additional duties. They were not the primary reason that he was sent into this world is to heal a few Jewish people 2,000 years ago. So at some point, he made a break from the healing, even though there were still people standing in line for a healing, and he had to go on to do his greater mission. Look at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, You follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So Jesus is pursuing his greater calling. He leaves the crowds even though he, they're not, he's not finished with all the healings. And he gives orders to the disciples, head to the boat, we're going to the other side. Do you know what's on the other side of the lake? Jesus is in the section of, uh, along the side of the lake where Capernaum is, where Jewish people live there. On the other side of the lake are Gentiles. Now, to us, that's not a big deal. Most of us here are Gentiles, and we thank God that the gospel got to the Gentiles. But to the Jewish people in Jesus' day, when he mentioned that God's good news was for the Gentiles, they not only had missed the point that God gave that as a commission to Abraham to, to be a blessing to the whole world, they were anti-sharing it with anybody. God only belongs to us. So when Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth said God's blessings are going to go beyond Jewish people to everybody, they wanted to kill him. So this scribe comes up to Jesus 
It says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is headed across the lake to talk to Gentiles. I mean, there are Gentiles over there. And remember, Jesus' ultimate mission is to seek and to save the lost. So he's trying to move his 12 disciples from engaging the crowd. He's trying to move them to get into their boat at the water's edge. And it's not easy. It's kind of like rounding up cats. And on the way, he encounters this scribe who volunteers. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wow. I mean, this is the kind of guy you'd want to recruit. I would hope that somebody like this would come to the new members class this afternoon with me. I mean, he's smart and he's studied and he's volunteering. It's the kind of church member every pastor prays for. He's heard Jesus. He's seen the disciples in action. He says, I like what I see. I want to be part of it. I can be disciple number 13. Count me in. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But from Jesus' answer, it appears that Jesus is questioning whether the scribe has counted the cost. I mean, his understanding of what it means to be a disciple seems shallow or uncalculated or in some way deficient because Jesus' response is this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, it's like Jesus is saying, in a very polite kind of way, of course, you have no idea what you're saying or what you're committing to. You are standing right now in an enthusiastic crowd of people from the home team who've just had miracle after miracle after miracle piled on top of one on top of the other. Everybody here follows me. It's the popular thing to do. But you'll follow me wherever I go? Will you follow me across the lake to care about somebody who's not like you, who doesn't believe like you, who's not Jewish like you, and he, even among the Gentiles? He, uh, he, he's an outcast. Will you follow me there? Will you follow me to nowhere to sleep, nowhere to call your own, nowhere for lunch? Follow me into the cold and inconvenience. Will you follow me to Gethsemane, to anguish in prayer over what God has in store for your life, to beg God to solve the world's problems another way? But then conclude, thy will be done. Will you follow me into arrest and torture and crucifixion and humiliation on the cross on Golgotha? Will you follow me to the tomb, to the grave? I mean, there is a cost to following Jesus. It includes inconvenience and ridicule and rejection. Have you counted the cost? Foxes have holes, he said. Birds of the air have nests. Foxes was a symbol for the Ammonites, which are racially related to the Jews. They lived close to it, but they were enemies with each other. Jesus called Herod Antipas that fox. Birds of the air is kind of a, a euphemism for Gentiles, for the Romans or for Herod's family. They're foreigners that have just kind of swooped in. There's some political symbolism going on here. And Jesus says, if you want political power, go to the birds who are already feathering their own nests. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, this term, the Son of Man, is found in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. And he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given the dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will never pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. Now this son of man 
is the same picture of the Son of Man that Jesus referenced in Matthew 25 when he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Okay? So the Son of Man is to have dominion and honor and glory and kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. That's this Son of Man view up here. Jesus called himself Son of Man. It was his favorite title for himself, and Matthew uses it a lot. What, he doesn't, seem to, what doesn't seem to be in that initial picture is to get from here to there, there's this valley that goes like that. That includes suffering. It includes the death of Christ. That the Son of Man is a suffering Savior. He's the Son of Man who has nowhere to rest, nowhere to call his own. Jesus is the Son of Man, but first he is called to suffer and to be humiliated. And, and, and we along with him, we will rule and reign in glory. But between now and then, there is this period of testing and suffering and being called on to Pay the price when and where necessary. Scribe, Jesus says, are you serious? Do you really want to follow a rejected, suffering son of man? He says, Scribe's a volunteer. And he's made this offer in a glib sort of way. He has failed to seriously consider the cost of discipleship. And he didn't answer. So what about you? Are you willing to pay that kind of price? Then it says, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. So the first person blocking the path of the disciples to get down to the boat to do what Jesus said is a volunteer. And the next is a recruit. In Luke, the, the order seems really a little better because Jesus looks at this person and says to him, follow me, you follow me. It's, in the, it's a command in the aorist tense, which it means start a new action. You haven't followed me before. Follow me now. And the man says, well, yes, Lord, I will, but first let me go bury my father. It sounds so good. It sounds so spiritual. But he's saying basically, Jesus, I would love to follow you, but I have these family obligations that I need to take care of. And I have a family duty, and it's really important. i got to go bury my father. Well, in that culture, if your dad died in the morning, you were having a funeral in the afternoon, the very same day. You didn't wait. There was no, nowhere to go put their body and cool anything, etc. You just you, you dealt with the body immediately. So if the father hasn't died yet... This man's saying, I have to go bury my father. I have to go wait for my dad to die. If the, his dad was dead, the man would have been there. He wouldn't have been watching Jesus do miracles on the, by, along the sea. And if he was sick, even sick, the guy would have gone and got him and brought him to Jesus. Wouldn't he to say, hey, you're my dad. So his dad hasn't died. He's not even sick. And he's saying, well, I've got to wait. I have to bury my father. So it was a clever way to say the right words, to sound to Jesus like, I, I, yeah, I want to do what you want me to do, but to really say, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. I mean, Jesus, I want to follow you, but surely you don't expect me to put you as a higher priority in my life than my family or than my parents, do you? I mean, they're my family. I'll follow you, Jesus, but after I've finished the other important things that I have to do, I intend to follow you, but there's these things that will postpone that till I can get to you, Jesus. I mean, the son has a duty and the, the community expectations and the peer pressure that, of course, you care for your family most of all, right? Jesus, you don't expect to be a higher priority than that, do you? And the answer is yes. Jesus expects to be and demands to be number one in our lives. Higher priority than spouse or children 
or family. Follow me, Jesus said. It's a command to participate in and proclaim the kingdom. And this person, if the scribe was overeager, this guy is undereager because he has one more thing he has to do, he thinks, before he's going to follow Jesus. And he puts his family ahead of his love for Christ or his commitment to doing what God wants him to do. Seemed like yesterday, but a few years ago in a previous church, we were having a men's breakfast, and there was a call to commitment to put Christ number one. And a man came to see me. He was about 75 years old, I think, maybe 80. Uh, and he said, you know, he says, there's just one more thing I got to do before I can follow Christ with my whole life. I said, well, <laughs> time's not on your side. <laughs> put Christ first today. You don't know how long you have. He said, no, 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 there's one more thing that I got to do. There's, I just have one other thing I got to wrap up. And then it was about two weeks after that. This man's name was Richard. He came home for dinner, or came home, and he said to his wife, Honey, get dressed. Get all dressed up. I want to take you out to dinner. I have some great news I want to share with you. And while she was getting ready in the house, the cat ran up on the roof. And so he put up a ladder, and he went up on the roof. And it was never quite known whether he had a heart attack and fell off or it fell off, and that triggered a heart attack. But he died before dinner. And she learned later that night, that the one thing that he wanted to share with her that he hadn't gotten to share himself that he was so excited about was he had just concluded the deal to buy a car dealership. And it was hell for her for about the next 10 years to try to get that thing unwound. It was the one thing that he felt like, I just got to do this before I could put first Christ first in my life. And he never got around to following what Christ wanted for him because he didn't put Jesus first. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us in this story whether the person responded in faith and obedience to Jesus or if he just did his own thing. It's kind of left open-ended. Really, what it's doing is it's putting a question there. What about you? What about me? How do you follow a Savior who can cast out demons and heal any disease? You go down here straight to the left. No, it's actually you go down here straight to the right. You move towards Christ. Because Jesus is the right way. You count the cost and you give him complete devotion. Immediately. Wholehearted loyalty. And then you touch the world with his love and grace. Because Jesus is deser deserving of all of our devotion. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, thank you that we can see you in action. This is just a little snapshot of you healing and caring for people and uh, restoring them uh, to, in health and strength, but then realizing you've got a greater mission than that. Help us to be about what you would have for us, to invite you into our hearts, to place you first in our lives above everything else, and then to practice acts of generosity and compassion and caring in this world so that we are demonstrating that the love of Christ is alive and active in our hearts and in our lives and in our church. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.